family farm. That was a great day for us. And then Sherry and I got to culminate that evening and spend time with Dr. Brassfield and Sister Kathy, who are here today. And I appreciate so much them being in service with us. And it's just a privilege that we have to be a part of a church family. Come on, to be a family, not just to be a house, a building, a fellowship, but to be a family. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, when you find it, if you would, honor the Lord by standing, honoring the Word of God. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 today. Though I'm not going to preach from the entirety of this passage, I'm going to draw something from the latter three verses that our attention will be drawn to. But I like to make sure that I'm keeping a scripture in its proper context. Paul the Apostle is writing, he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Do we have to have others write a letter of recommendation to you on our behalf or letters of commendation from you? Paul then affirms, he said, you are our epistle written in our hearts and known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Isn't that powerful? And such trust have we through God, Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. We believe that today in our own heart and life, our sufficiency is of God, who hath made us, who's also made of us a Able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Paul then transitions, but if the ministration of death, which was written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministry or the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious. Obviously, there is a comparison and a contrast between the ministry of Moses with the glory that was given at the giving of the law of commandments to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And he said the ministry of Moses, with the, that glory was done away with, and the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious. It is rather glorious. Now look at this verse 9, 10, and 11. It's from that that I'm going to extract our context. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory... Much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. We've been using the term that there are, we can go from glory to glory. Here Paul is using that similar phrase and phraseology as he's expressing that there is a glory that was associated with the giving of the law. But with the giving of the Holy Spirit, he said that was a, a more glorious moment. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Now, this is a powerful passage of Scripture. And I want to draw your attention to the 10th verse, the last four verses, the glory that excelleth. The glory that excelleth. Again, Paul here is contrasting the New Testament ministry of the Spirit that he said is contrasted by the letter. He said the letter was glorious to the degree that Moses his face had to be shielded from the children of Israel by reason of the glory that abode upon him. But he said that glory, as glorious as it was, is not really even worthy to be compared with the glory that now the people of God are experiencing through the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. So that while there, God has given glory, he shares it, not glory in the sense of his adoration and praise, he shares that with no man. 
but his presence, he has shared that with us. And so I thank God for the glory of God, don't you? I pray that God's glory would be experienced in this building today, don't you? And there is a glory that excelleth. And I want to talk to you about that for just a little while. The glory that excelleth. Would y'all pray with me? Father, I love you. And I'm humbled to be in this house and grateful for this privileged opportunity. And I ask that you would quicken the word of God. And you, I know that you have heavily burdened my heart to minister today. I feel so privileged to be in this room with this group of men and women. And to bring to them what you gave to me. And I pray, Lord, that... As readily as I received it, I pray they too will receive it in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Come on, somebody, amen, and you can be seated. I was thankful for the rain yesterday, even though I hate it when it rains on Saturday, except for to wash away the, come on, the cloud of pollen. But I'm still under the effects of that cloud of pollen, so please forgive me a little bit. I'll be preaching not only with a handheld microphone, but I'll also be preaching with a cough drop hidden deep down inside my mouth as I preach. So hopefully I'll be able to press uh, and get through this. Let me take a moment to talk to you about as you gathered in this house. Everybody comes to church for a different reason. Some come because it's the habitual pattern of life. You're like David. I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Sometimes you come in here and you're on the mountaintop. Sometimes you're at a little lower place in life. Some people come born of need and they just need something from God. The reality is in a congregation this size, there's simply no way that I can address every individual need and bring you that individual. And you're going to have to make sure that you put yourself in the heart of the text. You're going to have to make sure that you shield yourself from the distractions that are around you, which what I mean by that is the issues of life that you faced yesterday and the issues of life that you're going to face tomorrow. And you're going to have to say, God, give me an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Only if you have an ear that is attuned to the Spirit of God to listen will you be able to hear the voice of God and God can bring you a word for your family. God can bring a word for your life, for your situation that you're going through right now. And I believe that this word today will carry a depth of God's anointing upon it. I do believe that. I believe he will measure it out among us. But if your ear is dull of hearing today, if you're easily distracted, then the time that I spend in prayer and the time that I spend in study and the time that I spent in seeking God to bring you a word will have no virtue in it whatsoever if your ear is dull to hearing today. But if you are zealous for God... If you're zealous for the Lord, and if you believe that a word that is fitly spoken is like a cool wind on a hot summer's day, then God can bring you a word this morning that will lift your countenance and strengthen you and your faith. And you'll walk out of here, as we say quite regularly, different than the way that you came in. Today, as we know it across the, the, the Christian world and community, is known as Palm Sunday. And we're going, to, we're going to eventually arrive at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But we're going to go back in time. But we're going to go farther than that historic moment right now initially. Because I believe there is a precedence that was set at, at, at the time of Ezra the priest. That I believe bears, uh, uh, bears mentioning as we begin to embrace Jesus' triumphal entry. So I want to take you back to that sacred time. It was a very difficult time in the history of the nation of Israel. 
I'm not a historian, but I certainly enjoy gleaning from the history of the people of Israel, of their ups and downs, their highs and lows. We know this period as what was known as the Babylonian captivity. The children of Israel have been prophetically warned by Jeremiah the prophet that Nebuchadnezzar would bring his armies and destroy the city of Jerusalem before, because of their continual plague of apostasy and idolatry. And the word was fulfilled exactly as Jeremiah, the weeping prophet of lamentations, had foreseen. The children of Israel were taken captive and held in Babylon and what later became Persia for 70 years until the time of the decree by Cyrus who uh, authorized the children of Israel 70 years from the destruction of the temple to begin to regather in their ancient homeland and go about the most difficult task of rebuilding their lives and rebuilding their communities and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, but also rebuilding the temple, which was the center of all Jewish activity and worship. We find at least numerous uh, biblical writers address this journey, but I want to draw from Ezra the scribe for a little bit today because Ezra gives us that as the process of rebuilding has begun, it didn't take long for certain uh, difficulties to begin to rise up. You and I, probably many of you are familiar with this story, and there was some outside opposition, but my attention was drawn to a conflict or an obstacle that the builders would have to overcome in order to begin to fully bring the nation back to his place of great prominence and, and, and of the blessing of God. And it was to overcome the obstacle of disappointment and disillusionment. And I want to draw your attention to just a little segment here in Ezra chapter 3. They're going to put about four verses of Scripture. So remember here as this process is taking place, they're building the temple. Nehemiah, the governor, deals with the rebuilding of the walls. But Zerubbabel has led the very first return from Babylon to Jerusalem. He's now the leader of the people of Israel. Joshua is the high priest. There's great excitement to begin to go about the process of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The Bible says here, as we pick this up in the 10th verse, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, I think you're reading it there. Y'all can. It is, well, I'm reading from the King James. They've got it, the NIV, left over from... Uh, Grady last week. I'm going to spend time with Grady in the not too distant future and slowly transition him away back to God's authorized version, the King James Version. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Now stop right there. I love what was in the heart of the worshipers because they did not wait for the house to be fully restored to stop and praise God. Now that's a mystery in the kingdom of God that some of you perhaps have yet to learn. You can't wait for everything to be just right, to stop and give God glory. You got to stop. I'm telling you, you got to live sometimes from blessing to blessing. You can't just wait for God to bring about a hundredfold return for you to stop and give God glory. When God just trickles a little blessing to you, when he leaves you something in the field like Ruth, uh, who was gleaning in the field of Boaz, man, stop what you're doing right there and say, God, I want to give you glory. 
There was no roof on the building. There were no walls on the building. There was no pavement in the building. There was no altar. There was no brazen laver. There was nothing to facilitate worship. But the people had been in bondage for so many years. And the temple was nothing more than a dream in their heart. And now that dream is coming to fruition. And so Zerubbabel said, man, bring me the bearded psalmist. And let's crank up the worship team. And let's get this thing going. And they began to worship God. And I commend them for the worship of God. So they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. Why? Nothing has changed. Because he's good. For his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. Nothing has changed. 2,500 years later, let me tell you today, God is good. And his mercy endureth forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But the 12th verse says, but notice this. This is where the disillusionment takes place. But many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers, the Bible describes them as ancient men. Ancient men that deserved honor and reverence because they had lived to see many years and they had endured the, the, the fall of Jerusalem and endured the captivity of Jerusalem and of the city and of the people and now had been brought back to their ancient homeland. When they saw the foundation of the house laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. Now I'll clarify because you can weep out of joy at times. But these men are not weeping out of joy. They're weeping out of sorrow because they're contrasting the present temple that's being erected comparable to the previous temple that was magnificent. And the temple that's being erected now seems diminished in contrast to the temple that had previously been. And I was thinking about this. What a holy monumental moment that is in internal conflict. The people are shouting thanksgiving to God for all that God has done and is doing. But others overlook the shouting and the rejoicing of the people because they feel like what God is doing now is not the same glory as to what he did back then. And then I thought for just a moment, I, won't, I will hold myself back from really preaching this point today, but I thought about the modern Pentecostal church. Because the power of contrast can be devastating. Because if, just for an honest, uh, if, if I'm just giving you an honest overview today, the power of contrasting what used to be in the Pentecostal church and what is today, if you're not careful, can leave you very disappointed and disillusioned. If we think that what we have today has to look like what our forefathers had a hundred years ago, then we'll live the rest of our life in disappointment, never measuring up to somebody's presupposed standard. I begin to think about that for just a moment, and I wrote it this way, the revival of today will not look like the revival of yesterday, and you and I have got to accept it. Because there are, there are those that put pressure on the church, and our best is never good enough. And when you have your best, and when what you experience is always made to be shallow and insufficient, if you're not careful, then you'll grow discouraged, and you'll throw your hands up in exasperation and say, what is the use? Church family, we've got to be very careful. Let God do things the way he wants to do them. I'm going to say it whether y'all shouting back at me or not. 
It doesn't have, the revival of today doesn't have to look like grandma and grandpa's revival. Come on, the movement of the Holy Spirit today does not have to be a carbon copy of what we read about in our ancient textbooks. God said, I'll do a new thing among you. So let him do it. I better get right back on this. And so notice this. I don't think I gave them this verse to put there, but the fourth chapter, the 24th verse, as a result of outside opposition and internal conflict, the Bible says that the work ceased in the house of God. And so all labor was stopped as a result of the disappointment of the people and the pressure of outside intervention. And that's where the God of all grace raised up prophetic voices. Aren't you thankful for prophetic voices? Aren't you? The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel. A prophetic voice. God raised up men, two men by name, Haggai and Zechariah. The Bible says in Ezra 5, verse number 1, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied in the name of the God of Israel. They rose up and they began to build the house of God with the prophets helping them. That meant they had laid down their hammers. They had laid down their instruments of labor. They had laid down and they were exasperated in disappointment. Nobody was continuing the vision that had first been cast. But when Haggai had a word from God and when Zechariah had a word from God and God gave them an opportunity to preach to the people, then as they preached, there was an awakening in the souls of the men and the women and the labor began to get up and they began to say you know what let's go back to work if God be in this thing then who can be against us God didn't bring us back here for the work to lay uh, unfinished God's a finisher God finishes what he begins and so they found themselves being renewed. That's what preaching will do for your life. That's why don't let the devil keep you out of the house of God. Because all week long, the enemy's pulling away, pulling you down, tugging you away. And you get to the precipice on Sunday morning and you say, oh, I'm just too tired to go. That's why you need to go. Because God's got a word for you to encourage you to get back in the race, get back in the fight, go back to work, be the man God's called you to be, be the woman that God's called you to be. Thank God today for prophetic voices. The 14th verse of the 6th chapter says that the people builded and they prospered because they were aided by the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Now their prophesying did not stop the outside conflict, but it did stop the internal because God promised something through their prophesying about the latter temple comparison to the former temple. And I want to show you what this what the prophet said. Now turn with me to the book of Haggai. We're going to eventually in a moment end in Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. You say, Pastor, where's the book of Haggai? It's on page 874 in my Bible. Now let me also tell you it's probably right there where your pages are still stuck together. Though this is of the same time frame, Ezra is before the Psalms. Haggai comes in behind the Psalms and the major prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And Haggai thus has been mentioned as 
uh, in the book of Ezra as the prophet that God raised up to encourage both Zerubbabel, who is the governor, and Joshua, who's the high priest. But I want you to see we have a little snapshot of what the prophet preached to the people that changed their entire countenance. It gave them a new vision. It gave them new hope. It gave them a new promise. And I wanted you to see it as it's written in the Word of God. Chapter 2 of verse number 1 says, In the seventh month, in the one and the twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai. Thank God for the word of the Lord. Can I tell you today, I believe in sermons. I believe in messages. But God give me a word from the Lord. A word from the Lord can change your life. A word from the Lord will resound in your spirit. Deep will call to deep. If you've got a spiritual ear, see, if you don't have a spiritual ear, a word will go right past you. But if you've got a spiritual ear, you'll hear what the Spirit of God is saying to your life. So God began to stir Haggai the prophet, and he said, Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people. Now notice, remember what I said about the contrast. Here's what Haggai addresses the diminishing uh, thoughts in the minds of the elders who were comparing the present temple with the former temple. He said, who was left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Did you know that first house was glorious? Did you know that David had laid up for treasures from all of his warfare for the final years of his, of his reign as the king of Israel? He had laid up heaps of gold for his son Solomon to build the temple. He even said it himself. He said, the temple of the Lord must be magnificent for our God. It was a beautiful edifice, and the edifice that was being erected was being diminished in the eyes of some. And so God addresses it, and he said, how is it now? It's nothing in, your, in comparison in your eyes. But then the Lord spoke to Zerubbabel, and he spoke to Joshua the high priest, and he spoke to all the people of the land. And he said, I want you to work. Don't give up. Don't give in. Because I'm with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Sometimes that's all you need to know. Sometimes that's all you need to know to get up and keep doing what you're doing. Is that God is with you. And that God's presence is with you. I love what he said here in the fifth verse. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, fear ye not. I know that there are those among us today that you still compare the Pentecostal church of this generation with the Pentecostal church of bygone generations. But let me tell you today, the same anointing that was on Jack Coe, the same anointing that rests upon men like Oral Roberts or William Brenham, generals of the faith of the Pentecostal movement. It may have shifted, but it ain't gone. God's still anointing his men to speak and his women to speak the authoritative word of Almighty God. The same spirit that was on a bygone generation. Let me tell you today, when I got up this morning, I said, God, I want the anointing of God upon my heart. I didn't say, God, give me talent. I didn't say, God, give me a good sermon. I didn't say, let my notes be right. But I said, God, drip down holy fire from off the altar and put it on my head because the people need a word from God. So God still got men and women that are hungry for the presence of God. The same Spirit is still present among us today. For thus saith the Lord of hosts. I love this. I could preach on this right here alone. God said, for once in just a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens. 
and I'm going to shake the earth, the sea, and the dry land. God said, I'm going to cover the whole thing. I'm going to shake everything. Look at the seventh verse. And he said, every nation from the Assyrians to the north to the Egyptians to the south, God said, I'm going to shake all nations, and then the desire of all nations shall come. Now, let me get you going. The desire of all nations is going to come. And God said, I'm going to remember that house that you said it's diminished and it's not glorious and it's as nothing in your eyes and it fails in its comparison to a bygone generation. But the God of all grace said, there's going to come a moment, there's going to come a time when the glory of God that fills this house is going to exceed the glory of God that filled the previous house. Because God said, the gold is mine and the silver is mine and I'll bring all the resources necessary to make the latter house more glorious than the former. Let me tell you, God never does anything backward. God's always going ahead. The best is yet to come. The best is not in the rearview mirror this morning. The best is not in your childhood, your teenage years, but the best is what's in front of you because if God is leading you this way, His glory is going to go with you. Man, that's a good word for somebody in here today. It's a promise to us as a fellowship, and it's a promise to you in your life that God's not through with you. Just rise up and be, get back to work. Get back to work. You've been sidetracked from being in the kingdom. You've been sidetracked from working in the church. You've been sidetracked. Something calls you to lay down. You stop teaching your class. You stop driving your van. You stopped ushering. You stopped worshiping. You did all that. But God said, get it back on. Get back in the race. Get back in because there's a coming wave of glory that you don't want to miss. I believe in the glory of God. I don't know if some of you really do today, but I do in the supernatural manifestation of the presence of an almighty God. God is invisible. I cannot see him. God sometimes is inaudible. I cannot hear him with my natural ear. And God is intangible at times. I cannot touch him. But there are times that his presence is all around me. And I can feel him way up here, and I can feel him way down there. David said God's glory is so rich and so thick. He said, if I make my bed in heaven, behold, thou art there. But if I'm cast to the lower parts of the earth God is right there around me the presence of the living God the glory of God why not have a church filled with the glory of God why not let God do what he wants to do in First Assembly Heber Springs why not let a wave of the glory of God just sweep into a new time and a new season in, our, in the live stream of our fellowship I say God do it I don't know what you want, but I know what I want. God, let your glory come. Let the glory of the Lord. God promised. That was the promise to the people. God said, I'm going to shake all nations. And then the desire, look at that. The desire of all nations would come to the present temple, not to the former temple. Can I tell you a little bit now? I begin to notice something. I want to show you this. I, I believe in that. Are y'all with me out there in Radio Land today? Come on, the old preacher said it's going to get gooder. Come on, it will, because God goes from glory to glory. God's going to take what we're at right now, and he's going to move us deeper. I want to show you something. Now, that temple that was being promised, the people were being promised that the temple would house the glory of God, hundreds of years later would become known historically as Herod's temple. 
Now, why was it known as Herod's temple in contrast to what was the first temple, which was known as Solomon's temple? Herod, who was the, 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 the estranged king that was responsible for the deaths of the infants at the birth of Jesus, in order to win the favor of the Jews, he went about to beautify the temple. And a very elaborate remodeling and reconstruction process took place during the days of Herod the monarch. And it became a magnificent structure that would be, in comparison, equitable to the structure that had been originally built by Solomon many hundreds of years earlier. And so it had an outward adornment that even caught the attention of Jesus' own disciples. Many of you remember the, the language and the, and the, the conversation exchanged with Jesus' disciples on the Mount of Olives when they had visited the temple. And some of the disciples looked at it and said, look at the stones. Look at the ornament artwork. Look at the gold. and Look at the, the chiseled uh, uh, you know, ivory that's in this glorious temple. And, but let me tell you today, I don't believe that that outward adorning that even the disciples of Jesus caught, that had caught their attention, I don't believe that that was the glory that excels. I don't believe that was the glory that Haggai had promised that would come to that temple. And so when did the desire of all nations come to that temple? Now remember there were two prophets that prophesied that encouraged the people during the times of their disappointments and, and the time of their disillusionment. Who were those prophets? One was Haggai. We've already read from him. But the other was a prophet. He was a contemporary of Haggai by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah gave us many messianic prophecies. But there's one that stands out today that I want to draw your attention to. It's found in Zechariah chapter number 9. It doesn't tell us exactly when the desire of all nations would come to that temple. But it gave us an indicator of when by revealing how the glory of God would come to the temple. And in Zechariah chapter number 9, verse number 9, the prophet gives us a word, and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout. I love to shout. Well, my goodness gracious, that was the weakest amen for such a, 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 a spiritual, vibrant point that the preacher was making. Some of you have never learned how to shout. A shout is a spiritual force on the inside of you waiting to erupt. It is a shout of a king on the inside of you. Open your mouth. Shout and rejoice at the good things that God has done. The prophet here charges us. The prophet here challenges us. And he says, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Why do I need to shout? Rome is in occupation of Israel. The people are oppressed. There's a struggle for the live stream of the of the, of the nation. Why? Because your king is coming to you. Because your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. He's just, uh, he's got salvation. He's lowly. He's riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. But he's coming to you. He doesn't look like the way you think he should come to you. He doesn't always act like the way that you think he should act. But he's coming to you. Because I promised you that the desire of all nations would come. And he is coming. So shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice, all you people. The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. And it resounded in the hearts of the people. For a hundred years it resounded. And two hundred years it resounded. 
and 300 years from the day that it was offered prophetically off the lips of Zechariah until 400 years and the people's heart had melted. The oppression of the Roman people, the weight upon them. When would the king come? When would the long-awaited Messiah come? When would he come and redeem us as a people unto God and deliver us from the hands of our oppressors? Matthew records the story. Are y'all with me out there in Radio Land? Man, my preacher's about to catch up with me today. And so if y'all stay with me, I'm telling you, we're about to see something here in just a moment that I believe is a life-altering moment in the lives of the people of God. As it was with them, so it shall be with us, because there is a glory that excelleth. You say, Pastor, man, I've experienced the glory of God. Well, let me tell you that God's got more for you. You say, Pastor, man, I can tell you. Let me tell you about what God did when I was a I don't want to know about what God did when you were a teenager. I want to know what he's doing in your life right now because God's still got glory that will accept. Don't tell me about the revival that lasted nine weeks in the 1950s. I want to know what God's doing in 2019 because I believe in a glory that excelleth. I believe there's more in front of us than what we have experienced behind us. Come on, church family. Can I say it again that way? I believe that there's more in front of us than what we have experienced behind us. I believe that. I'm 50 years old, and I'm telling you, and I've enjoyed preaching, and I've enjoyed pastoring, and I've enjoyed the opportunity to be able to love God. But I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to fold up my hands in despair and say all the glory belonged to a bygone generation. But I'm going to lift my hands unto God, lift up my eyes unto the hills, and say, God, what you did back then, you'll do now, and you'll even exceed what you did back then because you're a God that brings the glory that does excel. Matthew records one of the most unique requests that Jesus made to his disciples. Many of you know that Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And there are more scriptures quoted in the gospel of Matthew than the other gospel writers. As he is affirming to the Jewish people that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And he records the unique request that Jesus made. Are y'all out there today? What was that request? He said, listen, he said, you remember now we know this is the Passion Week. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the day that he's anticipated, the time, the season. It's a difficult time at times because his humanity and the reality of the struggle of Calvary will soon be becoming paramount in his life, forefront. We see it as we I read it usually every year about this time, don't you? I, like, I want to read Jesus' passion. I want to see him try to feel and identify his struggle, his humanity contrasting with his divinity. And so he's been anticipating coming to Jerusalem, and I'll tell you what, he's doing marvelous things as he goes to Jerusalem. He's come through Jericho en route to Jerusalem, blind Bartimaeus, heard the procession coming and began to shout, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Somebody said, shut up, Bartimaeus. We don't preach and we don't shout like that anymore. But Bartimaeus said, yeah, I've been waiting my whole life, and I'm not going to miss this moment. And Bartimaeus began to shout and cry out to the degree that the procession stopped. And Jesus said, bring him to me. And they brought Brian Bartimaeus to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. And the Bible says he got in the procession and began to follow Jesus en route to Jerusalem. So it's an exciting time. 
It's a time of conflict, but Jesus sends two of his disciples and go into a village over against you. You'll find an ass that's tied, a colt with her, and bring him and bring them to me. And Matthew, as he writes this story, is writing through the experience of having perhaps witnessed it firsthand, but now the revelation is given to him by the Holy Spirit that this was the fulfillment of the exhortation by the prophet Zechariah during the days of the rebuilding of the former te- or the, of the latter temple in Israel 400 years earlier. And he writes in the fourth verse, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion. Remember what Zechariah said? Tell the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's meek. He's lowly, he's sitting upon an ass, and a coat, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did exactly as Jesus had said. And they returned with the, with the, with the, uh, the, the ass, and then all of a sudden, without being prompted, something internal on the inside of them. The first apostle begins to take off his outer garment, and he lays it on the back of the, of the ass. And then another apostle lays his garment down across the back and another one does until they patted the seat of the animal and then they lift Jesus up and they place him on the ass and then some man grabs a hold of the bridle and begins to lead and when he did everybody in the crowd a spirit a supernatural spirit begins to fall on the congregation that day And they began to recognize that this is no ordinary moment. This is a sacred moment. It's a holy moment. This is the desire of all nations. He's coming to his house. The king is coming to us. He's meek and lowly. He would not bruise a a flax. He He would not put out a smoking flax or break a broken reed. He was meek and lowly among us. He healed the sick. He opened blind eyes. But he's coming to us as a king of all kings. He's coming to us, and the crowd began to swell, and they begin to rejoice, and somebody began to shout, and somebody began to climb up on the palm tree and take a knife and cut the branches down and come down and run right in front of the animal that was bringing Jesus and lay it on the ground in front of him. And somebody took off their cloak and threw their cloak in front of him, and then somebody began to rejoice. And someone said, why are they rejoicing? Luke said that they're rejoicing because of all the things that they had seen God do all the things that God was doing miraculously you know I wondered I thought about that in my study and I said I wonder who was in the crowd that day I wonder if Jairus was in the crowd that day I wonder if Jairus said look right there honey you remember the 12 year old little girl that was dead that was inside of her parents room laying on her bed totally dead ice cold dead but remember he that said Talitha come on there he is honey he's right there on that animal and he's going into the city. Bartimaeus was in the crowd that day. And I'm telling you, you weren't going to shut Bartimaeus up because Bartimaeus had been blind all of his life until he that was meek and lowly had come to him and wiped away his blindness. And Bartimaeus was shouting. Let me tell you who was in the crowd that day. Lazarus was in the crowd that day. Martha was in the crowd that day. Mary was in the crowd that day. You and I were in the crowd that day because we were rejoicing at all that God, because the desire of all nations was coming to the house of God the glory of God could you not see it in your eyes the glory of God is coming the prophet said a glory greater than that of Solomon is coming 
The prophet said a glory greater than that of King David is coming. And the people had waited 400 years for the glory of God to come to the house of God. And it came in the person. I'm preaching better than y'all are shouting today. I'm just telling you today. But I'm telling you, i got a sound in my spirit today that says, God, there's a glory that excelleth. There's something better. There's something more. Don't you compare me to days gone by because when you do, you diminish the possibility of what God can do in my life. What he did back then was good, but what he's doing now is better. And God's got something even better than what he's doing right now because God has a glory that excelleth. God's got something powerful in your life. The glory of God. And the Pharisees said, rebuke thy disciples. And when Jesus heard that, he said, I'll tell you what, I could, and they would listen to me. But he said, you see those rocks strewn along this pathway that leads from the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount Zion? He said, you see those rocks? He said, I can constrain these disciples, but I can't constrain those rocks. He says, so if, I don't sh- if they don't shout, the very rocks are going to begin to cry out. They'll begin to shake. The walled city will begin to shake because God said, I'll shake all nations when the glory of God is coming. What a powerful moment it is. And now when I saw this, I said, look, man, when the king entered his temple, you know, he was grieved that his house of prayer had been made a den of thieves. And with a scourge of small cords, the son of David, Remember David meeting Goliath in the valley of Elah with nothing but a sling in his hand. And now the son of David, with nothing but a scourge of cords in his hand, is driving the money changers out of the temple. Because he knew in order to maintain the vibrancy of the glory of God, then the house of God has to be a house of prayer for all people. And then the Bible says in Matthew's gospel, That in the 14th verse, the blind and the lame come to him. And he healed them. Can you imagine? There had been never glory in that house like the glory that was in there right then. I'm sure there had been wonderful teachings. I'm sure there had been prophets of old. I'm sure there had been rabbis, magistrates. And encouragers, and there'd been Anna and Simeon, and there'd been prayer made in the house of God. But nothing like when the king was in his throne, and he was in his house, and his glory, come on, was radiating throughout the edifice. And blind people were groping to see him. And when they got around him, without spitting in the dirt, and making clay without laying hands on them, just being in the house of God where the glory was. People began to, eyes began to pop open. Come on, somebody. People that couldn't walk. Let me tell you, if you were handicapped in those days, your whole life was impoverished. If you were lame, you were a beggar. There was no resources. There was no way for you to make a living to provide for your family. They would lay you at a gate and you would be dependent upon somebody's benevolence as they went in to worship. But on that day, during that week, when the glory of God was in the house of God, they brought lame people 
into the house of God. And they carried them in and they walked out. Glory to God. I know you remember the story in Acts 3 that the man said at the gate of the temple, which was called Beautiful, he was outside the temple, and when he was healed, he leaped up and he ran inside the temple. But when that wave of glory came into the temple, when the desire of all nations was there, they carried him into the temple, and they ran out of the temple displaying the glory of God. But I'm telling you, I thank God that God's still changing lives. I thank God God is still changing the lives of men and women. And I love this passage here. The Bible says that they didn't call the spirited psalmist to lead worship. But they called his son. And the children began to sing Hosanna to the son of David. And they began to worship. And once again, the religious leader said, man, that ain't what we want to hear. That's not the tune we want to hear. That's not the song that we want to hear. Remember what Jesus said, though? He said, have you never written, have you never read that it is written out of the mouths of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. And worship fills the sanctuary and the prophetic word of Zechariah and Haggai is fulfilled to the letter. The glory that excels the glory of the latter temple. Are y'all out there? Was greater than that of the former. And if I were to stop right there and bring Shane and the worship team up, I could send you home right now and you could say, man, I've been in church today. And you could say, man, it's been good to be in the house of God. I didn't know preachers preach like that today. Well, yes, we do. We're just waiting for somebody to get on board with us. You could, I could close the sermon right now, and you could go home and contemplate both on the theology that you've experienced, been taught, and what you felt by being in the presence of God, what you've experienced, and a measure of His glory. And we could walk out of here and say, it's been good to be in the house of God. But then I studied a little bit further. And I saw something just a little bit deeper. And I want to show you that today. Can I do that in closing today? I believe there's another layer. Did you know there are a lot of theologians that believe that there are layers to prophecy? Now, I've kind of contemplated that at times, and I've not always necessarily agreed because I want to be very careful, and I want to never manipulate the Word of God. I, want to, I don't want to ever take something that belonged exclusively to a particular time and a particular era, or, or era and, and then try to bring it and force it into my life. I want to be very careful. But if there is something called layers to prophecy, let's consider if we could in closing today. There is a glory that excelleth. Mm, I feel, man, my preacher hadn't even got here just yet. He's just now about ready to get out. Because there's a glory that excelleth. There's something more. There's something more. Let me share with you what this is. As I contemplated, I thought about that temple. That temple that received the prophetic word that the glory of the latter temple would be greater than of the former. But did you know that that, same, that temple would be destroyed 40 years later, tragically just like the first one? Actually, on the very same day 
that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the former temple, Titus, the Roman general, destroys the latter temple. It's ironic when you look at it from that particular angle. And there are those within the Messianic kingdom that are awaiting a third temple to be built for God to fill with His glory and actually fulfill the prophecy. But my question is this. Is it possible that the glory that excelleth belongs to another temple, but not a temple made with hands? Is there another temple that the writer of Hebrews says that's not of this building? Is there another temple that if you contrast with what we call now the latter temple, which we also can call it a former temple, the writer of Hebrews says that temple is earthly, it's decaying, it's become old, and it's about to vanish away. But I wrote a question in my notes, and I said, is there another temple being built that houses the glory of God? A temple being built that's destined to be filled with the glory of God. And then I went a little bit back into Paul's epistle, not in 2 Corinthians, but back to 1 Corinthians. And I heard Paul say, Know ye not that ye are the temple and that the Spirit of God dwells on the inside of you and His temple is holy, whose temple ye are. And I know a little bit about this because I've been doing it a long time. And I know that individually, I am the temple. Paul said when he preached at Athens that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. But God dwells in the hearts of His children today. He's chosen to tabernacle among us. Glory to God. But then let me go one farther than that. Individually, you are the temple. But collectively, when we come together, when you get up on a sleepy Sunday morning, have your cup of coffee, get dressed, get the kids dressed, load them up in your vehicle. Maybe there's a little bit of frustration, even arguing as you make your way. But when you park in the parking lot and you begin to walk across the parking lot, fragmented though it is, and you open the door of the building and somebody else comes and somebody else comes and somebody else comes, then collectively we become the temple of God. A temple that God said, I'm going to fill with my glory to the degree that the glory of the latter house is going to exceed the glory of the former house. And that's why I believe that Paul wrote and said there is a glory that excelleth. That's far beyond anything we've ever, we've ever seen or could imagine. For the apostle Paul wrote, he said, there's a building that's being built. Did you know you're part of a building today? He said, there's a building that's being built. The writer said it's being fitly framed together. And here's what he said. You can read it. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 21. And it's growing together. Unto a holy temple in the Lord. Listen what he said. In whom you also are builded together for a habitation 
of God through the Spirit. As I close today, I say, Pastor Brown, what makes this temple so unique? It's being built up with lively stones. It's a spiritual house. It's not restricted to time or date. That's how come we can send missionaries to Africa. They could go out on the plains, and they could sit under a tree on a log. And when somebody comes and sits under the shade to get away from the scorching eastern sun, and then that missionary begins to preach, and that native goes back and brings his family, and another family comes, and they sit there on rocks and on boards, and they begin to worship wherever two or three are gathered together. There in my name, then the desire of all nations is come. He'll come to them meek and lowly, riding on a foal. He'll come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He'll come as a Savior, a Redeemer. Maybe He won't redeem you from Roman occupation, but He'll redeem you from the bondages of sin and iniquity, and He'll set you free to bring glory to His Father. I believe in the glory of God. As the worship team or whoever is left among us of the worship team joins me on the platform today, there is a glory that excelleth. A wall of separation is torn down between Jew and Gentile. A wall of separation between men and women. Did you hear me? You said, Pastor, we didn't have those two nights of revival. Then I'm bringing it to you right now, all in one. Concentrated, packaged together right here in this house. There's a glory that excelleth. There's something beyond anything that we've ever known previously. And as I was thinking about this, as I truly close this message today, and I say to you today, how can we as a fellowship see the greater glory? I think we ought to look back at the triumphal entry in closing today and say, if what they did helped usher in the glory of God, that if we can just somehow catch the spirit of that moment, then every time we come together, did y'all hear me today? I know there are a lot of churches that don't know how to experience the presence of God. Some theologians will try to argue against the presence of God. But I want you to know today, I believe in the manifestation of the presence of a living God who can allow His glory to be readily discerned and noticed and felt. I know that word doesn't appear in the Miriam English Dictionary, but you know what I'm talking about. I feel the presence of God. I recognize His presence. It changes my life. I'm marked by the presence of God. You might call it the glory of God. Moses put a veil on his face to shield himself, but I don't know about you. I want the glory of God to reflect off of me onto others so that they can experience the glory of God that's in my life and that they can be brought into His glory. There's a glory that excelleth. Number one, they put Jesus on the beast. The Bible says they lifted Him up. You know what brings the glory of God when we lift up Jesus? Did you hear me? If Shane has to pander to your particular needs to get you to worship, then we'll never have the glory of God. But if you come to this house every Sunday morning and say, I'm going to lift him up, I'm going to lift him up, I'm going to worship him. It's not about me, it's about him. It's not about my wants, my desires, my preferences, it's about him. I'm going to give God glory. Then I'm telling you, you're going to help usher in the glory of God. Then they begin to cast down their clothing in the way. That means submission to his kingship. Let me tell you, he's either Lord of your life or he's not Lord at all. He's either your king and you submit to his will or you're playing church and you're going to miss the glory of God. Make him your king. 
I was reading the book of Judges a couple of weeks ago. And there, there are three times the writer of Judges says, there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. I could say that's the story of the American church many times. Jesus is not king to many of us. And we live life however we want to. But let me tell you, let him be king in your life. Did you hear me today? Let him be king in your life and you'll help bring in the glory of God. He went into his temple and he said, you know what? I got to deal with some things. And he cleansed the temple. You know what I say to God every day in my life? Lord, make me clean. Come on, somebody. Are y'all with me out there? Make me clean. Y'all stand up with me today. Make me clean. And I want to say this to you today. God's house still has to be a house of prayer. We have to find a way. The culture, the church is changing. People don't give you as much time as they once used to. I know that. I've experienced the trauma of it. But let me tell you, somehow, some way, we still got to make God's house a house of prayer. We got to burn incense on the altar in the house of God. And the Bible says that the blind and the lame came to him. But you know what? Blind and lameness does not just mean physically. But you know that there are people that have been spiritually blind all their life being brought into this house and they're seeing God for the very first time. And they're seeing and they're learning how to love for the very first time. There are people that are physically, that, that, that spiritually and emotionally and, and relationally, they're lame. They don't know how to function. They don't know how to walk. But as they come into the presence of God and experience the glory of God, they're learning how to live. Men are learning how to be fathers. Moms, come on, girl. wives are learning how to be, come on, moms and, and, and mothers, come on, and, and wives, women are. And we're learning how to love one another. We're learning how to walk in faith before each other. Does that make sense today? And he said, I love this, the children still perfect praise. Let me tell you what I've learned, Shane. The older we get, the more we look back. We do for some reason. We have a tendency to look back. But the younger are always looking ahead. And I thought about that today. And I thought, you know, every now and then Shane will have young, no-bearded psalmist sing. He's a way maker. He's a miracle worker. He's the he didn't say he used to be a way maker. Or back 30 years ago, he was a way maker. He said he is a way maker. And I tell you what, the children always remind us that the best is yet to come. That's why we want to put a microphone in their hand. Because as we age, they're going to tell us that the glory of God that we can see in our future is still brighter than the glory we experienced when we were younger. Glory to God. And you know what I'm not going to do as I get off this platform and I'm going to just invite you to worship. Would y'all come down for just a couple of minutes today? And would y'all sing in this house, and let's raise the roof for just a minute, and let's welcome.